the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from Psalm 85. Psalm 85. Each psalm actually has a title. And the title of this psalm, to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. So, what does it mean to the chief musician? Some people said chief musician is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, but others said chief musician is the leader of the choir during the time of David, like Heman or Asaph. Then the author of this psalm, the sons of Korah. Who are the sons of Korah? They are Levites from the tribe of Levi, from the family of Kohat. During the time of David, the sons of Korah were serving in the musical aspect of the temple worship. The musical aspect of the temple worship. As we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 19. Also, they served as temple gatekeepers as we read in 1 Chronicles 9.19 and also they served as bakers 1 Chronicles 9.31 So the sons of Korah had three services one, the musical aspect of the temple worship two, the temple gatekeepers three, as bakers Korah, their grand-grand-grandfather started a rebellion of 250 community leaders against Moses about the priesthood. can read this story in Numbers chapter 16. And God judged Korah and his leaders, and all of them died. As we read in Numbers chapter 16, verse 32, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together. But the sons of Korah remained, his children remained. As we read in Numbers chapter 26, verse 11, nevertheless, the children of Korah did not die. So their name came as sons of Korah in 10 Psalms, in 10 Psalms, from Psalm 44 to 48, and from Psalm 84 to 88. So, either these psalms were written by David or other author, and just it was sent to the sons of Korah to chant it, to sing it, because they were serving in the musical aspect of the temple worship, or other scholars said maybe one of them was the author of these psalms. When the psalm is written, Psalm 85, it is clear from the context it is written either during or immediately after the return from Babylon captivity. As you know, people were taken captives into Babylon because of their sins. So this psalm apparently was written immediately after their return. But after they returned from the captivity, there was also a remainder 
of the signs of God's displeasure. So still God was disappointed with them. That's why in this psalm we'll see how they prayed that God remove his anger and his displeasure completely, completely, and to be in complete reconciliation. So this psalm belongs to that time and this psalm is filled with promises in the midst of a time of waiting and uncertainty promises to all of us this psalm is written by a patroid for his afflicted country just returning from captivity in which he pleads the Lord's past mercies and by faith expect brighter future as God was with us before he will actually be with us in the future so this psalm is essentially a prayer to God to restore his people maybe it belonged to that time they returned from captivity but we the children of God can find ourselves in their place from time to time when we are taken captives by sins and this beautiful psalm is appropriate to pray that's why the church included in the sixth hour of the Agbeya in the sixth hour of the Agbeya and also the church included this hour of Agbeya because big big part of it has prophecy about the salvation by the Messiah the salvation that was fulfilled on the cross in the sixth hour that's why we pray the psalm in the sixth hour of the Agbeya it is a psalm that suits the church that is constantly persecuted by the world and the whole psalm seems to have reference to the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ wherein Christ almost every word of the second part find its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ so almost every word in the second part of the psalm was fulfilled through Jesus Christ as we will explain this psalm is 13 verses verse 1 to 3 thanksgiving to God for past mercies 4 to 7 prayer for new mercies 8 to 13 confidence in God's response so let's start by verse 1 Lord you have been favorable to your land you have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sins. Selah. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. From verse 1 to 3, they are to acknowledge with thankfulness the great things that God had done for them. Mainly, God has forgiven his people and restored his people from captivity. So God is thanked for partially he removed the chastening hand from them and gave them return to their land for prosperity. And also that he granted forgiveness of the sins of the people that's why he said you have brought back the captivity of Jacob 
from Babylon to their land Israel. You have forgiven all the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sins. So the psalmist finds relief when he saw God's care for his land. Notice in verse 1, he called the land of Israel your land, the land of God. O Lord, you have been favorable to your land. The Bible tells us that the whole earth belongs to God. Yet, there is an undeniable way in which Israel, in his special position, with God having a special regard for the land of Israel. For example, God chose the land of Canaan for the people of Israel, and he called it the promised land, and became a symbol for the inheritance of kingdom of heaven. And actually, he delivered people from Egypt and made them possess this land. God himself chose this land to be the place of his temple, place of his sanctuary. God asked people in the Old Covenant to worship him in this particular land. Although the whole earth belonged to God, but the land of Israel, especially in the Old Testament, was his land and his inheritance in a very special manner. Also, there is a, a prophecy about the coming of the Savior. The land that rebelled against God and was defiled by idol worship now is saved by his coming. So when he said, Lord, you have been favorable to your land, the whole land that rebelled against God, the whole land that worshipped idols, now God, through the coming of the Messiah, saved every single person. And he brought back the captivity, not from Babylon, but from Satan. So, after the fall of Adam, God cursed the land that he created and gave to Adam to inhabit him and his children on account of his sin. And he told him, by toil and labor you will eat from it. But as this land was cursed because of the first Adam, the same land was blessed when God the Father sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into the same land which he created. That's why the angels chanted and said, Glory to God and highest peace on earth, goodwill towards men. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. In a temporal sense, either the captivity of people when they were in Egypt or in Babylon. But in a spiritual sense, the captivity is from sin and Satan. So the redemption by Christ is deliverance from our captivity by sin and by Satan. Jacob is a symbol not only to the Israelites but to the whole human race. As St. Paul said in Romans, being a wild olive tree 
were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. So the olive tree, the old olive tree, is Jacob, Israel. But we the Gentiles, the Christian, we were grafted in the same olive tree. So Jacob and Isaac and Abraham are our fathers, not according to the flesh, but according to the faith. The Sassabists now explain the manner in which God, by blessing the land, how he put an end to the captivity, how by remitting the sins of the people. So in verse 1 he said, Lord, you have been favorable to your land, you have brought back the captivity of Jacob. How? Verse 2, you have forgiven the iniquity of your people, you have covered all their sins. The iniquity that once hindered us from having relationship with God now is taken away, removed. So now actually we are reconciled with God. God's remission of punishment and restoration of his people was full indication that he had forgiven their iniquities and covered their sins. Covered their sins means forgive their sins. Covered our sins by his blood and by his righteousness. Covered our sins by his sacrifice on the cross. Yes, we know nothing can be hidden or concealed from God. But when God forgive our sins, he take our sin completely. As if no longer this sin exists whatsoever. That's why when you think about how God covered our sins, all our sins, and forgive all our iniquities, this was a great blessing. That's why we need to pause for contemplation and to acknowledge the mercy and the grace of God. That's why the word Silah at the end of verse 2 the word Silah means pause, pause for contemplation, pause for meditation, for devout acknowledgement and silent worship for this great blessing. In verse 2, the psalmist spoke about how God forgave the iniquity and the sin of the people. Verse 3 explained the effect of that forgiveness. Because our sins are forgiven, then you have taken away all your wrath. You have turned it from the fierceness of your anger. Because God has forgiven Israel's sin, it is as if they had never sinned. God no longer has a cause to be angry with them. They were once the subject of God's indignation, God's judgment. But now, they are delivered completely from it. And there is a special beauty when he said, all your wrath is speaking of a complete work. You have taken away all your wrath, complete work. So there is a great relief in knowing that God's anger and wrath has passed. 
As in verse 2 he said, you covered all their sins, which means a complete work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Again, by covering all our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ satisfied God's righteous requirement to the fullest once for all on the cross that's why all his wrath is taken away especially when considered the fierceness of his anger you have turned from the fierceness of your anger Saint Jerome says you have taken away all your wrath you have turned from the fierceness of your anger see the extent of the power of repentance it keeps a man from falling under the wrath of God. See the power of repentance. It keeps man from falling under the wrath of God. Verse 4. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. From verse 4 to 7, there is a prayer for new mercies. Two things are prayed for. Number one, God will turn the heart of his people totally toward himself. Restore us, O God of our salvation. Restore us to yourself. That's the first prayer. Number two, he will complete his work of deliverance by removing any traces that still exist from his past anger. Yes, in verse 3 he said, you have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. But if there is any remains, any traces from your anger, completely remove it. Cause your anger toward us to cease. So the psalmist began by thanking God for their return and their restoration. So in the light of this past mercy, the psalmist now prays for continued and present restoration. Still Israel in a state of great distress and weakness, suffering from natural consequences of their sins. That's why Israel is still depressed and sad. Like when we repent, when we repent and return back to God, still will be suffering from the consequences of our past sins. That's why he said, restore us, O God of our salvation. We seek God's divine assistance through your grace. Without your grace, we cannot be restored. We want to return to you and to remain in you. He is asking that God turn them from their sins, restore us. Bring them to repentance. Make us willing to forsake every evil way and enable us to be able to do it. We admit that we cannot be changed and renewed to God unless your grace go before us. By your calling, enlightening, assisting and moving and transforming us. But we have no authority for asking God to turn away his judgment unless we are willing to forsake our sins and offer repentance. If we are willing to forsake our sins and offer repentance, then we can ask God to turn away his judgment. That's why in verse 4, 
before he says, cause your anger toward us to cease, before saying this, he said, restore us, O God of our salvation. Then in verse 5 said, will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? So the idea here that if we are turned from sin, the cause of the anger of God would be removed. That's why his anger will cease, will end. God's anger will continue if we continue in sin. But if we repent, God's anger will be removed completely. That's why he said, will you be angry with us forever? As if he's saying, you were angry with us for 70 years when we were in captivity. And it seems for us that your anger will never cease. That's why he perseveres in the prayer saying, we have borne your anger long enough. So don't defer the gift of your mercy. Don't defer the gift of restoration of your peace. Will your enmity to human race be everlasting? Are you going to be angry with us for all generations? Not merely for this generation, but the next generation and next generation forever. St. Augustine has a beautiful comment on will you prolong your anger to all generations and says, for by the anger of God, we are subject to death. And by the anger of God, we eat bread on this earth in want and in the sweat of our face. This was Adam's sentence when he sinned. And that Adam was every one of us. Why? For in Adam all died. The sentence passed on him has taken effect after him on all of us. For we were not yet ourselves, yes, we, we did not exist as individuals, but we were in Adam. Therefore, whatever happened to Adam himself took effect on us also, so that we should die. For we all were in him. As in Adam all die, in Christ shall all be made alive. In first Adam all died. In Christ, all will be made alive. Seeing this, the psalmist says, Be not angry with us forever, nor stretch out your anger from one generation to another. The first generation was mortal by your wrath. The second generation shall be immortal by your mercy. Verse 6, Will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. This is a simple and wonderful prayer for revival. Will you not revive us again? The psalmist is asking God to restore them to life once again, to make them whole, to end their suffering. He tells us the effect that will follow from being reconciled with God, that man will come to life then he will rejoice then he will praise God and this is about the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection when God brings life to the people once again 
we will rejoice. But we will rejoice in a very particular way. We will rejoice that we are once again within the borders of God's grace. After the fall, we were outside the grace of God. It was no small matter to be outside God's grace. But Israel, now, he feels when God forgives them, they will return back. They experienced to be in Babylon, in the land of captivity. So it will be no small matter when they are once again drawn inside God's grace circle, where they desperately want to be. Then, when you revive us, we will rejoice. We will rejoice in you. So praying for revival means praying that God's work among his people would cause them to find their joy in nothing else except you. We should pray for revival when we sense that we are under a cloud of divine displeasure or an evident lack of blessing. So, if I feel I am in a state of darkness or God is displeased with me, it's a beautiful prayer. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Revival is the work of God's mercy. You cannot earn it. We cannot deserve it. It is God's grace that He grants us through revival. True revival demonstrates the salvation. The salvation is the work of God, not our work. So having asked that the divine wrath may be diminished or completely removed, having asked that the reconciliation and revival that always accompanies remission of sins, with the remission of sins there is reconciliation and revival, he now is asking for the coming of the Savior, through whom we were brought clearly to see and behold God's mercy and God's kindness. That's why in verse 7, after he spoke about the reconciliation and the revival, he said, Show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. It's a prayer about the coming of the Savior. St. Paul said to his disciple Titus in chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace has appeared. So when he said, show us your mercy, O Lord, grant us your salvation, it's about the incarnation of the Son of God. Salvation can have many expressions. It can mean eternal life. It can mean being accepted to God's grace. It can mean deliverance from one's enemies. In verse 7, he is asking God to make them see and feel by experience that mercy through which God determined from eternity, planned from the foundation of the world, to bless his land, to bless his people, and to grant us his salvation. Show us your mercy and grant us your salvation. St. Augustine says, 
St. Augustine, taking a moral view of this passage, he said, God shows us his mercy when he persuades us and makes us see and understand that we are nothing. And we can do nothing of ourselves. But that it is through his mercy we exist all. And we can do anything through only his grace. Thus, we are neither proud nor puffed up, but humble in our own eyes. To such people, the Savior gives his grace. So, show us your grace, according to St. Augustine, make us, means, make us realize that we are nothing, that we have no existence apart from your grace. So when we know that we are nothing, God gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. So when we realize our nothingness, then God will show us his grace and grant us his salvation. Verse 8, I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people and to his saints, but let them not turn back to fully. So, in verse 8, to convince us of the truth of what he now means to express, the psalmist reminds us that he is speaking not from himself. These are not his words. But what he is saying has been revealed to him by God. He listened and he is only announcing what he has heard from the Lord. That's why he said, I will hear what God the Lord will speak. Then after hearing it, he announced it. He will speak peace to his people and to his sin, but let them not turn back to food. So, he listened because he anticipated a favorable answer to his prayer. And he started to write down to us the main point. The main point, God will speak peace to his people. So, I can imagine the psalmist here, patiently listening to God, willingly hearing God's voice and whatever God should say. But he has confidence that what God will say will be favorable to his people. He will say words of mercy and peace. Whatever he shall say will tend to their peace, their blessedness, and their prosperity. So the psalmist hears God with pleasure and with attention. He listens, pay attention, because he knows and confident that God will speak peace to his people. Then what is the message of God to his people? That he promised peace. Through the coming of the Messiah, glory to God in the highest peace on earth. So, in verse 7 he said, show us your mercy, O Lord, grant us your salvation. The answer, I will send my son to the world to grant peace on earth. God promised peace to his people, not to everyone, but to those who are his followers. To the sins. He speak peace to his people, to his sins, but let them not 
turn me back to food. So, after he said he will speak peace to his sins, he talks about the way which he had formerly pursued, which is foolishness. It is not only just the sin, but there is element of foolishness to walk in the way of sin. For the people of God, in order to get this grace and mercy, they should be humble and surrender to God. They should turn to Him in true repentance and not turn back to foolishness. Let them not turn to doubt God or to question the providence of God. That's foolishness. Let them not turn back to idolatry, love of money, love of pleasure, pride. Because there is danger if we return back to this foolishness. Also, people, Israel, when came out of Egypt, there was tendency to worship idols. And again, after spending 70 years in Babylon, there was tendency to worship idols. That's why he said, let them not turn back to fully worshiping idols. So, the humble and surrendered people will enjoy the nearness of God's salvation. As we read in verse 9, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. Salvation is near, not far, to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Glory may dwell in our land. Those who have a true sense of their sin and their hatred and depart from it and don't return back to it and walk in the fear of God. Those who have a reverent love for God have a sense of His goodness and His forgiving grace and mercy. Those who fear Him and serve Him with reverence and godly fear, they will enjoy the salvation of God, the salvation of Christ. It will be near to them. It will be at hand to save all those who fear Him, all those who worship Him with holy fear. And when God moves among us in reconciliation, glory will dwell in our land. That's why he said salvation is near to us. And when salvation is with us, then glory will dwell in our land. For those who fear the Lord, He will not only be near to them, but He will be in them. You are the temple of God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Glory will dwell in our land. He sees once more the glory which had so long deserted the land, returning back and coming back. That they may once again see glorious days in their land. Glory dwell in our land also is a prophecy about the Incarnation. Glory dwell in our land. How is a prophecy about the Incarnation? Christ is the brightness of His Father glory as we read in Hebrews chapter 1. And glory to people Israel as Simeon the Elder said. So when He was incarnate and dwelt among us, glory dwell in our land. 
in verse 10, he explains and reveals another mystery that will be accomplished with the coming of the Messiah, with the incarnation. This mystery is the union between mercy and truth. Mercy and truth seem to be opposed to each other. But with the coming of the Messiah, they are reconciled. Verse 10, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Why mercy and truth as if they are opposed to each other? Truth prompting to punish, but mercy to forgive. But with Christ's passion and suffering, he wanted to deliver us in mercy. But in the same time, he made the fullest and complete satisfaction to the divine justice. So can see in Christ how mercy and truth, who are apparently opposing each other, have met together in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and in his sacrifice on the altar. So in verse 10, in beautiful terms, the psalmist describes the salvation that God brought to his people through the Messiah. In God's great work of salvation, mercy and truth have met together. So God loving kindness and truth, the love which moved him to enter into covenant with Israel, and the faithfulness which binds him to be true to his covenant, met together in the work of redemption. So his love that appeared in making a covenant, and the faithfulness to these covenants to be true, this met together on the cross. And this verse, actually verse 10, was an inspiration to what we read in the Gospel of St. John. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as one, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Not only grace and truth met together, but also righteousness and peace have kissed. Kissed means they greeted each other warmly. Righteous condemned the sinner. And because the sinner is condemned, then it prevents God's peace from reaching him. But in the salvation that was fulfilled on the cross, the righteousness and peace now became friends, kissed together. Because in Christ we fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. So now we are not the object of God's wrath, but the object of God's peace. So we can see here these four divine attributes that lifted the humanity at the fall of Adam. They returned back with the salvation that fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11, truth shall spring out of the earth, righteousness shall look down from heaven. He now touches on the mystery of incarnation. Who is the truth? Christ. He said, I am the truth. And the truth will be born of Virgin Mary. So, 
How the psalmist said truth sprang out of the earth, according to Saint Jerome, by the incarnation of the divine word in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So also justice from heaven will be made manifest. Because with the birth of Christ, true justice began to come down from heaven. And man became to be justified by faith in Christ. So when the truth was born from St. Mary, he fulfilled all the righteous requirements of God. So now in Christ we are justified. So righteousness looked down from heaven. Jesus came down to proclaim his love for all of us, for the sake of our salvation. So you can see here, God pours out his truth and his righteousness. They seem to spring forth from creation itself. That's why he said, truth spring out of earth, righteousness shall look down from heaven, as if from creation itself. So one result of the reconciliation of God's mercy and truth shall be growth of righteousness among us, among people. Because in Christ, we are fulfilling all the righteous requirements of the law. And prophetically, this refers not only to the reconciliation started at the cross, but also has in view the completion of this reconciliation at the second coming of Christ. As we read in Romans 8.21, creation itself also would be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So when he said truth spring out from earth, righteousness look down from heaven, speak about how the creation, the whole creation will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. St. Augustine made a comment on truth shall spring out of the earth. He says, Christ is born of a woman. The Son of God has come forth of the flesh. What is truth? Son of God. What is the earth? Flesh. Because Adam was created from the earth. Ask whence Christ was born and you see that truth is sprung out of the earth. But the truth which sprang out of the earth was before the earth. So this truth that born from Virgin Mary in the fullness of time, he was before the earth. Because by him, the heaven and earth were made. But in order that righteousness might look down from heaven, in order that men may be justified by divine grace, truth was born from Virgin Mary. So in order for righteousness to look down from heaven, the truth has, has to be born from Virgin Mary. That he might be able to offer a sacrifice on the cross to justify us the sacrifice of suffering, the sacrifice of the cross. Also, St. Augustine said, Earth is a believer, because we are created from Earth. And also because we became Earth because of our sins. But through our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, truth sprang out from us. And instead of falling under the punishment of sin, we enjoy new life. We are liberated from sin and we can reflect the light of Christ. You are the light of the world.
St. Augustine also says on the same passage, we may mention another meaning. Truth is sprang out of the earth means the confession from man. How does truth spring from you? Because we are the earth. Because you are a sinner while you are unrighteousness. Confess your sins. That's the truth. When we confess our sins and we say we are sinners, truth spring out from you, then righteousness will look down from heaven. So the truth is that we are sinners. When we confess this from the earth, righteousness will be justified. We will be righteous. Verse 12. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. And our land will yield its increase. The Lord will give what is good. He will shower us with blessing. Both spiritual and temporal. Because God himself is pure goodness. He will return from his wrath and will give us what is good. But to whom? To his repenting people. So, God will give what is good. What, what is good? They say, if these verses speak about the incarnation of Christ, then God will give what is good. God will give us the Holy Spirit. So these verses about the descent of the Holy Spirit. God will give us what is good. It is the good news of the gospel among us. And he actually is taking images brought from the fruitfulness caused in earth by rain from heaven. So when there is rain from heaven, God will give what is good. Our land will yield its increase. When God gave us the Holy Spirit, we bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. When God gave us the good news of salvation, then we have the virtues and the righteousness in our life. God will not withhold any good thing from his people. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, as we read in James chapter 1. Also, some scholars said, verse 12, still speaks about the incarnation showing that the truth could spring out of the earth how not like you plant a seed and cultivate it but you know you see how some natural flowers grow spontaneously without planting any seeds nothing except the beams of sun and the rain from heaven so the incarnation happened without seed of man without seed of man he will send his holy spirit from heaven to overshadow virgin mary and thus our land which was never cultivated nor sown actually was untouched virgin will yield the fruit the son of man is born from this earth last verse verse 13 righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway righteousness will go before him christ shall work and fulfill all righteousness as i told you 
he fulfilled all the righteous requirement of the law. He shall satisfy and glorify the righteousness of God and shall progress the practice of righteousness and holiness among us. Also, he shall make his footsteps our pathway. Meaning what? He will enable us, will empower us to walk in these righteous steps where he walked. And he can support us by his grace to follow his footsteps. Or when we abide in him, it will be our pathway. St. Augustine said, the righteousness will go before him. Repentance will prepare our footsteps led by God himself. So, God actually through repentance will prepare us to walk in his footsteps. Righteousness will go before him. This verse personifies righteousness as if righteousness is a person goes before God preparing the way for God's steps. The righteousness of God is so rich and it makes our way his footsteps. So we follow his footsteps. So the footsteps of God became a way. I am the way. So we will follow in his way without any hindrance or difficulty. Also Christ is the son of righteousness. Shall bring us to God. That is the way. I am the way, truth and life. I am the true way that leads to life. So he will bring us to God and put us in the way that leads him. But other scholars said, Righteousness go before him. John the Baptist is a forerunner goes before Christ to prepare the way. John the Baptist was only to prepare the way of Christ by doctrine and by baptism, but by guiding the people into the way of peace, as the Christ said about him, by directing them to believe in Christ and to be the followers of Christ. That's why John the Baptist pointed to the people, this is the Lamb of God, and he asked his disciples to leave him and to follow Christ. John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying about John the Baptist, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This concludes actually Psalm 85. Glory be to God forever and ever.